In this episode of Women Taking the Lead, I'm talking to Stephen Josephs about how to transcend your ego to resolve conflict and make real human connection. There's a line from one of the poems where he says, as long as there be a foe, value him, respect him, measure him, be humble towards him. Let him not strip from you, however strong he be, compassion the one wealth which can afford him. Hello, my name is Jody Flynn and welcome to Women Taking the Lead, where we are all about creating blasts of inspiration to help you overcome self-doubt so you can lead with confidence, integrity, and a sense of humor. Head over to womentakingthelead.com to join the community and get the resources to support you on your leadership journey. Now, your future awaits, so let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I am here with Stephen Josephs, and Stephen is a leadership development expert. He is dedicated to helping leaders shape their culture and bring out people's best work in ways they haven't thought of before. He is particularly interested in the strengths women bring to their leadership roles, and he helps them build their capabilities and skills to thrive in today's business environments. In his 40 years of leadership development work in corporations, he has integrated mindfulness as a central part of developing executives and even has a recent course for engineers called Mindfulness 2.0. Stephen, I was just having a chat with somebody yesterday about working with engineers, and we were talking about some of the more soft skills and mindfulness. So I love that you're focusing on that. And you and I have had conversation before. It boggles my mind that you've been doing this for 40 years. But before we really get into the topic of today, tell us more about you and what you have going on in your life right now. Well, I think when my um, co-author Bill Joyner and I wrote Leadership Agility and also when I wrote Dragons at Work, uh, those books were sort of return on investment sales for meditation. And uh, mostly the way meditation is talked about right now has to do with um, uh, stress reduction. But there's something more fundamental and uh, central that it delivers that, that people overlook, and that's the transformation of the self. And um, uh, talking about women in the workplace, you know, uh, the, the real problem that a lot of my clients face is, is how can they be uh, authentic, radiant, strong, women uh, inside cultures that don't necessarily value what they bring. And um, that's what I I love to do with my women clients. And I I should also mention that when it comes to utilizing uh, really fully uh, the collective intelligence of of a culture, a group, a, a work group, or a team, that that women bring something to the table that uh, takes men a little longer to learn, which is uh, how the interpersonal connections support all that. So it's very exciting working with women. And uh, I like working with men too. We're just a little slower on that that dimension. But um, anyway, that's what I wanted to add. 
I will underscore what you say. I love working with men as well. There is something about men. They are straight shooters. They will tell you like it is. And I enjoy (laughs) that. And I laugh with them when they just get just honest about what's going on. Um, But you and I had um, both had talked about how there is something different to working with women. I mean, that they do bring something different to the table and they have different needs. And I definitely want to get into the process that you use when you're working with women and what the ultimate goals are. But before we go there, give me and everybody else a sense of what is the typical situation, the woman who approaches you for coaching, what is she dealing with when she's thinking to herself, okay, I need coaching and she approaches you? Well, often people uh, are, there's some kind of shift in their career. So they're taking on something new, and uh, maybe it's a bigger role. And roles are are sort of sometimes they're a little like a an an overcoat that you get when you're uh, a teenager and you're growing into it. And um, what what I try to be careful about is to make sure that the role doesn't require them to distort themselves. Um, that it's actually a fit for what they naturally. Love to do. And, uh, you know, there's a a sense of being in your sweet spot and uh, where the problems in front of you are give you the feeling of, boy, I was born for this. This Mm -hmm. this is great. I really know how to do this. And so uh, sometimes they're in a role that takes advantage of all that and it's really great. But then they uh, walk straight into some of the cultural. Uh, difficulties that have to do with women in the workplace. And uh, a lot of times there are some communication skills uh, and some ways of conceiving of their roles that I think really help. So, um, um, and we can go into that too, but I was just wondering if you had thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I a couple of things you said, I think, um, It is wonderful when you can step into a role and you feel like, oh my goodness, this role was made for me. What I've seen in my experience is sometimes people hesitate about taking on a new role because they've seen how their predecessor did, you know, performed in that role, how they Mm -hmm. executed in that role. And they think, oh, I have to do it that way. But some of the best leaders that I've seen take on a new role and make it their own. And they figure out like the goals might be the same, right? If you are, you know, the, you know, director of operations, there are some goals that are set for you, but how you achieve those goals can be different for every leader and also has to do with the dynamic of the team and who you're working with and what their skills are. But I think when leaders can recognize okay, I don't have to do this job exactly the way my predecessor did it. Yeah. I can make this my own. Yeah, say more about that. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that's right too. And, and one of the issues that, that comes up is, is uh, how do you handle conflict? And, um, it, you know, some people are, are conflict averse. But if you look at, uh, if you want to think of archetypes, think of the woman warrior who's the guardian of the business entity and also the guardian of, uh, of all the, that goes into making their role effective. And so they can't give up that stuff. But at the same time, 
if they're meeting with opposition or they're meeting with uh, people who disagree with them, then uh, the question is how, how do you approach that and successfully um, get the other person to be an ally or at least a thought partner with you? And uh, so as an example, I, I'll just take it out of the abstract for a minute. So say that, that someone has an idea and that you and your role know <laughs> when you listen to it, there are flaws in it. And, and if they, they actually executed on that idea, it would be disastrous. So, um, you know, without going into detail about rapport skills, you really need those. You need to connect with the person uh, personally. And, um, you know, there, there's lots you can read about that. Um, but once you've established that kind of connection with someone else, then the trick is to really ask permission uh, to introduce some other ideas. So you acknowledge all their good ideas, their contributions, and then uh, you may say things like, may I, or I'd like to suggest an alternative approach. And then a good way to do it that saves space for them, the other person whose ideas aren't as evolved as you are, just say, your solution is a really good solution. Um, I think that I have a different set of assumptions when I approach this, and your solution doesn't address some of my assumptions. So can we talk about those and, and just uh, uh, see what we come up with? That's a collaborative way of introducing new ideas that they didn't think of, and it, it doesn't make them feel like a jerk. Yes. And that speaks perfectly to what you were saying earlier, where, you know, the role could be perfect for you and you're fashioned for this role, but now you're bumping up against things in the culture that are making it difficult for you. And it's not about, you know, complaining or crying about the things in the culture, but looking at how can you make a difference in the culture. And, yeah. and it is a lot about conflict resolution. And I think you point to a perspective that a lot of us lose. And we're going to talk a little bit about this in a moment when our egos get involved, where we feel like, oh, they don't agree with my idea or they don't want to do it the way I see it. I'm taking it personally. This person is my adversary. When the reality is this person is not your adversary. If you can let go of taking it personally and treating yeah. this person as an ally, you know, and it's a, it's a matter of, like you said, it, it's navigating that conversation that can make the difference between interacting with somebody as an adversary as opposed to an ally. So I'm going to hand this over to you because I know right. that this is your zone. Yeah. Well, Jody, you know, I, uh, so if I were coaching you and you were the, as an example, and uh, you said, well, you know, I'm having trouble with this guy, Fred. And uh, then the way that I would work with you is I would say, okay, so let's just pretend that you're Fred for a minute. I want you to sit like him. I want you to move like him, breathe like him, your vocal cadence, be like him, be him as much as you possibly can without it being uh, a caricature or condescending because the, the idea is to really be him so that you can understand him. So then you do that. And then I interview you as Fred. I just say, well, Fred, you know, uh, 
uh, tell me who's at home for you, you know, goldfish, uh, children, uh, you know, uh, partner, etc. And, and uh, tell me how you got into this job and what matters to you about it. And then uh, I can say, well, I understand you're meeting with Jody at, uh, at uh, two o'clock on Thursday. You know, what's at stake for you? And then uh, I skipped a part. What I would have done initially is said, well, if you have this kind of confrontation with Fred, Jody, what would you say to him? And then at the beginning of all this, you would say, well, I, I tell him this and this and this and this, and this is really important to me, et cetera, et cetera. So back to interviewing you inside of uh, uh, Fred's role, you would just say, well, Fred, now that you're really deep into it, Jody, you know, now that you feel like him and have some connection, I would say, you know, I happen to know what Jody's going to say to you. And uh, I was wondering if you'd like to hear that. And everyone always says yes. Uh, if they say no, that's interesting too. Then you would say, how come? <laughs> and that'll give you great information. But let's, but say they say yes, and then you read back. This is everything that uh, Jody is going to say to you. And people invariably have the reaction of, well, that could work and that could work, but that would never work. That other one, oh my God, I should never say that. And then you can also ask questions like, um, you know, what's one thing Jody could say to you that would uh, convey her intention uh, to work together collaboratively with you to come out with some solution that you both like. So, uh, so that's another part. And in the role, you may generate that. And then when you come out of that role, um, then as a way of understanding how you could present this to Fred, Jody, you, you know, we, we could construct uh, sort of a framework for it where you could say, Fred, you know, I've been thinking about it from your point of view and in preparation for this meeting. And, you know, some of the issues that, co that come up, if I were you, would be the following. And I'm happy to, um, uh, to also say what's at stake for me uh, in the interest of putting all of this on the table so that we can figure out a solution that feels good to both of us. Are you willing to do that? So, um, so then you would be uh, sort of prepared in a, in a different way, a deeper way, and often a more compassionate way. And then um, there's a, another, uh, you know, one of my favorite poets is Lao Tzu. And uh, there's a line from one of the poems where he says, as long as there be a foe, value him, respect him, measure him, be humble towards him. Let him not strip from you, however strong he be, compassion, the one wealth which can afford him. And, you know, just um, for my clients, I want them to feel nurtured in the world and nurtured by themselves and not have to be uh, at battle all the time. And, and there's there's a there's a, a way to do that through compassion through all parties, and that's where the meditative uh, stuff comes in. 
But people have different ways of, of uh, understanding and working with that. So if I just describe one, I'll miss a lot of people, but I guarantee that anyone can get there. Um, <laughs> I'm talking a lot, Jody. I'm wanting to hand it over to you now. There's so much of what you said, Stephen. I did not want to stop you because um, it's pure gold. And I love when someone recites a poem. I like, I could just feel myself just like get really focused in. And for those of you listening, I bet you felt that way too. You just want to stop and take it all in. And there's so much in what you said in that, that example of the role play. So many thoughts I had. Let me see if I can capture them all. One the role play has so many benefits because one, somebody could, like you said, if they say, no, I don't, you know, (laughs) want to hear what Fred would have to say. Like you said, that, that gives you a lot of information. The other thing, when you were asking question, like what's Fred's home life? Like, what does he have going on for himself? And it could be Fred or it could be, you know, Frida. If somebody can't answer those questions, what it really tells you is they haven't spent time trying to get to know this other person as yeah. a human being. Exactly. And to have that quality of conversation, we have to know the other person as a human being. Do we have to know everything about them? No, but there should be some simple questions we can answer about their home life that says that we've been curious about them, that we've been interested and wanting to get to know them as a human being. And the thing with role plays, too, is a lot of people will say like, oh, I don't like role play. I'm uncomfortable. It feels awkward. But the reality is we get so much from a role play, so much information. And also what I find is after somebody role plays a conversation, and I love how you do it in different ways where you do like, hey, let's just go in guns a blazing the way you wanted to do it. Now let's really consider Fred and would that work? Now, how would we have the conversation? They walk away feeling calmer and more confident going into that conversation with Fred, because it's not necessarily about, I need to go in there and tell Fred what's what. And now I'm anxious about it because I know it's going to upset him or her. I'm going in there to have a conversation to find out what we can come, what can come of this conversation. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's something else about that kind of role play. I call it a reverse role play because you're reversing roles with the other person and there's no performance anxiety in it because you don't, you know, sometimes you have a role play. And if I were working with you, I I would play Fred and, and you would talk to me as Jody. But in this, it's completely disarming for the, uh, you know, the client doesn't have any resistance to it because it's just play and you get a chance to be the other person. And then there's, there's one other thing that sometimes gets added on uh, to this process if the other person has some skills at um, sort of transforming emotions. And I work with people to do that. So the idea is, I would say to you, Jody, is there anything about Fred that uh, is off-putting to you or you just don't like and say you said yeah he's a self-important creep <laughs> you know um, I'm being extreme here but then um, if if there were something like that I would say okay Jody so not that you behave like him but if you ever did you can imagine yourself behaving like this 
And actually, it's more usually kind of a self-important jerk that people say. And then imagine you're behaving like Fred. And then go ahead and, and uh, feel the emotions that would have to drive that to get you to do that. And then you feel those. And there's a way of feeling it in your body and letting it change the expression on your face so that you can read your face from the inside. And, and usually when it's uh, some jerky behavior, there's usually a fear underneath it, like a, a fear of um, sometimes not being accepted or being thought to be incompetent or it can go deeper than that to be even abandoned. And um, what you do is you find that in your body and you just release all the tension for that and, and accept it in yourself. Just say, you know, in the right circumstances, I could be, uh, perform like that. And so we're all in the same boat and that little bit of fear in me, I can, uh, I can embrace, nurture, I can bless it, I can let it go, I can just release all the tension that's around it. And now I don't have to get so upset about Fred, because when I see it at him, I'm not, it's not resonating something in me that I don't like, because I've already dealt with it in me, and it's easier to see it in him. And, you know, back to Lao Tzu, he says, um, a good man or a good woman before she can help a bad man or before she can help a bad woman finds in herself the matter with the bad man. So a good man before he can help a bad man finds in himself the matter with the bad man. That helps humanize it all and you don't have to take it that seriously and it just releases the tension. And I might be going too deep on this, but a couple of points I want to make on what you said, which is really important when we're trying to get along with other human beings, right? We need to align with other people to accomplish our big goals. And it's typically these people, you know, even if they have no direct impact on our life, but maybe they're just somebody in our life. But if they're aggravating us and we're getting frustrated with their behavior, that's draining to us. And it, ste it steals our power and our effectiveness in our life. So I'm just making the case for why I want to go deeper on this. What I found is that the behavior that triggers us is typically a behavior that we can see in ourselves, that we're either maybe we don't act that way but we don't act that way for a reason. We're managing ourselves because we can see the tendency in ourselves to potentially act that way. So for example, during a time in my life when I was really confronting my own judgmentalness, you know, my, my tendency to judge others and to judge situations, I could not tolerate in others their being judgmental. Mm -hmm. It would trigger me because it was something I was managing within myself. Another point I wanted to make is, and you, you made a great point that typically when somebody is, is not being their best or their highest self, it's usually because there's some insecurity or some fear or threat at play that's causing that behavior. And something I've been reflecting on recently is, if that behavior triggers me and I 
interact with that person negatively, right? I judge them and maybe like snap at them or, you know, say something demeaning to them about their behavior. I'm only reinforcing their behavior. I am confirming to them that their perception of there being a threat out in the world or feeling insecure is valid. Mm -hmm. However, if I observe that behavior and I bring to them compassion and kindness and treat them like a human being, the message I'm sending to them is, hey, you can bring the defenses down. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to judge you. I am not a threat to you. And what I found in the past is in those situations when I didn't knee-jerk react and have a negative response to somebody's behavior, and I just slowed down, maybe took a breath myself to manage my own emotions and said, hey, what's going on? Or just interacted with them like everything was fine. I found that that person was more open to me and found me to be more approachable in the future. Like they did not display the same behavior, whatever, you know, we'll call it that jerkiness behavior because they knew they didn't need to display that behavior around me. There was nothing to defend against. Yeah. I like that a lot, Jody. I, I never thought of it uh, as when you react negatively to the other person's uh, uh, negative behavior, it reinforces it. Um, I, I think that's true. And uh, nice one. Oh. <laughs> See, this is, I was like, and for anyone who's listening, if we are, we are doing too ambiguous, philosophical, like, uh, you know, I, I want to say I apologize, but I don't. I love conversations like this because it gets me to think about how to be a better person, how to have better relationships. And even in my leadership, how to be a more effective leader. Now, Stephen, You've described a little bit of the process that mm -hmm. you take your clients through. Tell me a little bit more about that because you definitely have said that um, the, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the goal of the coaching process is to help your clients transcend their ego. You know, describe that process just a little bit. And what are the benefits of being on the other side of that? Well, I think, um, you know, there are all kinds of, uh, if you, I, I often ask my clients, uh, do you have a particular philosophy or religious beliefs or even ethical precepts that guide you, that, that um, tell you how to live a good life or be a good human? And often... Um, those, those particular things are great. You can integrate them into uh, meditation. Um, but the, the other thing is, um, if you took from all the traditions and philosophies and the rest of it, usually in religions, there's somebody who had a direct experience of something uh, that transcended the normal human experience. Uh, you could call it the divine. So you have the founder of the religion, and often they weren't really founders. They weren't trying to do that. They were just experiencing something wonderful. And then you have people who come after that who 
uh, didn't really understand that and they create a bunch of rules and regulations. Um, so, uh, you know, first comes the ecstatic uh, mystic and then after that comes the Department of Motor Vehicles um, <laughs> with a bunch of rules. Great analogy. <laughs> but if you want, if you got all the mystics from all the traditions in a room together, they would have no argument with each other. It's only the different departments of motor vehicles that would have arguments. And so what I like to do is put people in touch with a sort of the original source of, inf uh, of inspiration that's there for all of us. And, uh, you know, the idea of how do you drop your ego? Well, you know, there are, there are things that get at it in a mild way, like um, just being able to listen in a way where you drop assumptions. So think of it this way. Think that, imagine that you've gone to a concert hall and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a symphony orchestra and they're all tuning up, you know, and they're all making these, it's this cacophony of uh, chaotic sounds, but it's kind of exciting too. And then they all stop, you know, and the conductor is there and he or she is, uh, you know, waiting for things to settle. There's a room sound, a sound that, that the room seems to have. And it's a kind of silence in a way, but it's filled with energy and you can just feel it. So that's there underneath all senses. And if you really let yourself be one with it, in other words, just listen to it and let it pervade your body, you would feel that sense of stillness uh, that's energized and full of potential and light and love. Uh, and that's where your uh, precepts come in, you know, as how you characterize that. But if you can dwell in that place, uh, that place has no I in it. It has no ego. So if you listen to the music, now let's say that it was a kind of music that you hadn't heard before. Maybe it's some, really wonderful jazz and you can't predict what's coming next. So you sit there without assumptions because you don't uh, predict what happens next. And the, the feeling of awe of wonder is when you had an explanatory frame for something and then it didn't work anymore. It, it didn't capture the reality that you now can uh, feel and, and experience. And so you just drop it. And, and no explanatory frame has come in yet to grab your mind and uh, make it small. It's just open, listening to the room sound or, feel, or, or, or seeing the space between objects and even inside objects. There's no self in that and no ego. And just to be nurtured by that space for a period of time between conversations between things that you do at work because most people won't spend uh you know even a half an hour a day to meditate um but there's a way of approaching your work and approaching other people in your conversations where you can drop in to that space without assumptions and even uh where the self is not as prominent 
And uh, that's a meditation in itself. And that, that works. It changes people. I love that. Um, I've had experiences like that, but I want to ask you, and it sounds almost blasphemous to say, okay, let's bring this down to the ground level and, and see the tactical benefits of this. But, you know, you've had clients who've been able to achieve that where they can drop into that space throughout Mm -hmm. the day and get centered and grounded and come back. I imagine feeling renewed and open and ready for the next thing. What have been the benefits to them of being able to drop into that space throughout the day? Well, it's easier for them to, uh, other people can sense it and they know when they've been listened to. When uh, I had a a mentor in graduate school uh, who is this genius jazz musician and he had a way of listening and then asking questions out of curiosity based on what you said that just took you deeper. And you realize that he was uh, your friend and that he was brilliant. And um, as a, this is a, an African-American young man, as a young man, he walked into the Mana School of Music and gave them a study in dissonant counterpoint that elicited the response from the entire faculty of young man, you can study with us for free for the rest of your life. Um, So this guy was brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. And at the same time, here is this person in possession of all that intelligence who would sit and listen to you with a fresh mind. And it just brought out so much creativity in all of us. We just adored him. And, um, (laughs) you know, uh, I could tell you stories about him. His name was Roland Wiggins. He's no longer with us, but what a great human. And um, so I think think it just brings out people's uh, best work to to be uh, blessed with that kind of listening when somebody wants to penetrate into exactly the, the value and the thinking behind what you want to contribute. So there are all kinds of ways, but that's the first one that comes to mind. I'm feeling very poetic about listening right now because you are absolutely right. It is, how do I describe it? Um, when you're not just able to give somebody your undivided attention, but your full listening, like your entire being mm-hmm. is present to the other person, you're exactly right. They do feel it and things can shift and possibilities can open up from that level of listening. I was just having a a casual conversation with a woman this past week where it was a catch-up call and but I was really interested in what was going on in her life. She's a, a um a young mom. She's, you know, raising a child in the middle of a pandemic. She's working a full-time job. She's volunteering and really oh. wanted to get a sense of her experience. And the funny thing is she was cracking jokes and laughing and and all of this stuff, but she did feel, you know, like they like I've got a lot going on. And by the end of the call, she's like I feel so much better. This has been amazing. She's like, I would love to talk to you more often, you know, that sort of thing. And I was just like, and like, I recognize like with humility, like 
this is a gift I bring. This is a gift I'm capable of giving another human being where they, I can create a space for them where they have, you know, my presence and my being holding space for them and being very interested and curious about them. You know, see, I, you know, you and I both know, but I want to underscore just for those who are listening, like this changes lives, this changes relationships, this changes what organizations are capable of when we bring this level of listening to one another. It's truly a gift. Yeah, it is. Well, Stephen, my goodness, this has been an absolute pleasure. And I'm sure there are others like me who are like, who is this guy? I need to find out more about him and what he's got going on in his life. So tell us, what are the best ways to connect with you? Well, if you want to read a book about how coaching goes, there's a book called Dragons at Work, which I wrote uh, to sort of portray what coaching is like. And the coach is a, uh, she's a, a young woman who is a, uh, she's, she's a master of uh, Tai Chi and she lives with her kind of enlightened grandfather and they, they talk about her work as a coach and in the corporate world. And it's, it's a lot of fun to read, but it's also very instructive. And then there's the more academic um, book called leadership agility with uh, I wrote with Bill Joyner. And then um, the other thing is just, I, I don't maintain a website anymore because I'm just not interested. I, you know, might sound sacrilegious to say, but you can go just look me up, Stephen Josephs on LinkedIn and uh, you'll get enough uh, so that you can contact me if you want. And for those of you who are listening and uh, this resonates to you, I'd, I'd love to hear from you and find out what you're doing in the world see if there's anything for us to do together. Awesome. Yes. And you and I connected on LinkedIn and that that has just been a wonderful experience overall. And for those of you who are listening and you're on the go, you're running, I know you guys are very active. You can find this episode at womentakingthelead.com forward slash Stephen, and it's spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N dash Josephs, J-O-S-E-P-H-S. Uh, and that's at womentakingthelead.com forward slash Stephen dash Josephs, or you can use the search bar. Just put Stephen's name in the bar and his show notes page will pop right up. I will have links um, to LinkedIn and the places that you can connect with him. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to inspire and enlighten us. We are all better for having met you. Oh, thanks. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you all for joining me on Women Taking the Lead. And to strengthen you on your own leadership journey, I'd like to send you off with a quote from Marianne Williamson, so here goes. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. 
And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Again, thank you for joining me, and here's to your success.